The following discussions are a further look into Director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door So before we move on to chapter eight, one of the things that I noticed as I was bouncing back and forth between the audio drama and the written novel is that in spite of the fact that these are meant to be journal entries and therefore include a lot of narration of internal thoughts, there's more than a few places where those written down entries are missing in the audio drama, usually where... Thomas or somebody else is specifically saying how they feel during a given situation because they're trying to let the voice acting itself take the place of these expressions of how they actually feel. Mm. Having said that, there are a few places where I wonder at the choice to leave certain parts out. The one that I pointed out to you was Wilson's response to there being no scotch available. At which point he says, Oh, you shower of barbarians. And then the text... What's that of phrase? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the text, Thomas narrates, I was unable to pinpoint whether we had amused this man or mortally offended him. <laughs> and okay, that was me attempting to do a Thomas voice there. I don't know if I succeeded. Um, yeah, yeah but... I, I liked it. I... Okay, fair enough. Yeah. It should be obvious, I had done an attempt to imitate Thomas as a part of the recording, and since it didn't really sound like much of an attempt at all, I went back to give it another try. But to be perfectly honest, I don't think I can make myself sound exactly like Alex manages to narrate Thomas Arlington. What I come up with really sounds more like General Curtis, or a mix of General Curtis and Frank Butler, but I gave it a fair try, so I decided to save it for posterity. To, to move on to my actual point, this thought that the text expresses, I'm not certain if it was definitely clear in the voice acting for me, listening to w- what Calvin was trying to convey, because on top of that, Thomas isn't the one that responds to mm. Calvin's comment. It's McTavish who goes on to say, oh, but we have this instead. So therefore, Mm. the internal thoughts of Thomas don't necessarily get a chance to express themselves. Mm, They don't have an outlet. Exactly. But Mm. I can also see the reason why Alex may have chosen not to include that part in the audio drama was to just make the conversational style flow better in places. Because if that back and forth about the alcohol and what's available is interrupted by Thomas's narration, then it might make it feel a little less organic, mm. you know, because here we're Especially supposed to be... Especially because it's quite a comedic moment. Yeah, exactly. Why step on the comedy? This is the lightness of tone that we're seeking here, as mentioned mm. previously. So keep the focus on the action rather than on... Thomas's journal entries, even if this is in theory something that he wrote down later, rather than we're actually seeing play out in real time. There's a certain dramatic mm. illusion that needs to be maintained at times, even if it would feel weird that people would be able to remember conversations exactly for later entry into journal entries and everything like that. Mm, you 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 accept these concessions of yeah, like exactly. mm, the narrativization of these things requires it 
I, I do think that that's it, what you were talking about, how it has to have this kind of flow to it, because we are enjoying a conversation here. So mm-hmm. it does help the conversation flow by giving that the center stage. And for the record, before you made me aware of that discrepancy between the written text and the audio version of it, Thomas's insight is actually exactly how I interpreted Wilson's response, that he has a somewhat off-kilter and dry sense of humour, and that he says this ostentatious phrase as a way of kind of mixing in a serious shock at the lack of this coveted drink with an exaggerated indignance to amuse his company and indeed us, the audience. So here's a question, because you would have more familiarity with this than I do. Ask away. Would this be a good example specifically of the difference between American humor and British humor? Hmm. I suppose. I I think that this is one of those things that uh, this is something that I take for granted is what reads as humorous or Mm. as like easily recognizable as intended to be humorous Mm. because you know that's just like the climate i'm in i just like i will forget to take these considerations into account i would say that as woefully uh lacking in self-awareness as we are as a population there's a weird (laughs) uh there's a weird tendency that our comedy often has a self-effacing quality to it. Mm-hmm. That it might just be that the people who are like able to get a job in comedy are able to just say, "Oh no, we're we're awful," or like just <laughs> even just like on a personal level, that it's difficult to convey because it's not necessarily sarcasm. Mm. It's just a, but it's a com- it's a combination between dry humor and sarcastic humor is that little weird space that some british humor can occupy the sort of thing that you might very well see Rowan atkinson deliver less in mr bean and more in blackadder that sort yeah. of thing or indeed john cleese and faulty towers it's that there's a lot of things which i i find it difficult to analyze because Mm. of that me being just too close to the source on it and also i think comedy is just a very difficult thing to break down and analyze for the well-documented reasons of like let's ruin the joke by explaining it but uh yeah on, on top of that i also think to myself like it's not as if americans don't have the joke of being offended by the thing that somebody else likes as opposed to the thing that's right, so to speak. Mm. But I feel like it also has a different quality of it in terms of delivery, whereas Mm. in the case of Calvin's delivery, I guess I can actually see where Thomas's novel narration does kind of split the difference there in terms of being unsure if it's a joke or if it's not. It's just in that... fact, this might that might even be a case of what we're talking about here, which is mm-hmm. that like w- Calvin Wilson's humor is a bit lost on him, and mm-hmm. that's not just mm-hmm. because and Thomas isn't immune to like being humorous. We've seen this yeah. in these chapters alone. It's just that like you know Calvin Wilson is like almost from a different world. The presence of Calvin Wilson, his humor, his insight, his qualities. Remind me in some part of the character of Lord John Marbury in the West Wing. Obviously, the role he plays is different. Marbury is a member of the peerage and an ambassador, meaning that he has an enormous amount of privilege and status, and a certain amount of arrogance comes with that. What that often means is that this arrogance becomes a component of his humor. John! (laughs) Mr. President! Thank you for coming. How was your flight? Uh, yeah, intoxicating. Oh, I see. Uh, allow me to present myself, Lord John Marbury. I was summoned by your president. Yes. We've met ten or twelve times. And we on McGarry. Well, I thought you were the butler. No, I'm the White House Chief of Staff. Uh, nonetheless, uh, would you have something with which to light my cigarette? Oh, I'm afraid we don't allow smoking in this part of the world. Really? Yes, sir. 
This part over here, we encourage it. Sir? Uh, it's um, your lordship, as a matter of fact, but it couldn't possibly make the least difference. Marbury himself can also be self-effacing, as well as insightful, but he doesn't often let the mask drop in regards to himself. He is one part humor and one part serious counselor, and also tends to steal the scene whenever he's present. But as someone that has had a chance to learn a lot about how Aaron Sorkin crafted the West Wing, I also know that the performance of the actor that plays Marbury is also tightly scripted. There's no improvising, no riffing. While Sorkin did get contributors from his writer's room, he still wrote everything himself during his four seasons, and there was no deviation from the script, ever. Meaning that as an American, he would have had to have fabricate any shades of British humor himself. In the case of Alex, it would be the reverse. I think it would be easy for Alex to write American-based humor, due to the fact that so much of the media he likes to talk about is American in origin. But I also know that he and Sharon love Red Dwarf and Eddie Izzard and Tim Minchin, among others. And it's not that I've ever considered Alex's humor abstruse or bemusing. It's just that I do understand that humor often has a cultural component, and even with the similarities between us, there will sometimes be subtext that is inobvious. I think I'm going to leave this digression there and not deconstruct further, because it's such a small part of the story, and my own habit of thinking too much about things sometimes gets me into trouble, especially in regards to humor, as people on the Discord are well aware of. Let's bring it back once more to where I left off with Toby. You would also have a pretty good familiarity based on um, the media that you've intake in, uh, in regards to the way things are in America and even other parts of the world. Not, not to say that America mm -hmm. and the UK are the only important places or anything like that. It's just from the perspective of American humor is the thing that I'm most familiar with and British humor might be the thing that you and Alex are most familiar with, even taking into account that you've seen and read and imbibed a lot of media that comes mm. from America as well as from uh, your neck of the woods. There's certainly a good old stew casserole of many like cultural touchstones and brands of humor that certainly gets passed around and added to as we exchange things from mm. with one another just collectively i would say that my most familiar area of humor that i'm able to identify is neither american humor nor british humor it is the animated humor <laughs> yeah that would obviously <laughs> make a great deal of sense which is even more complicated to talk about since mm. with you with your focus on sorry, not claymation, but in stop-motion animation, a lot of the humor that you would be most interested in is very physical humor. And I'm not even talking about physical humor in terms of slapstick. You know, I'm just thinking about like one of the best examples of something that is humorous without even necessarily intending to be, or maybe it is intended to be, is just the visual image of... Gromit's the dog, right? I, I knew you were going to say this. I knew you were going to say <laughs> that example because that is the like overlap of British and physical animated humor. Yes, yeah. Gromit is the Gromit dog. is the dog. So the visual image of him putting down the train tracks as quickly as possible is incredibly humorous. If it's only just from the perspective of like he is narrowly trying to avoid disaster by continuing to have track for the train that he's on to proceed down i have never seen an image condense and convey so much of my life and identity as a stop-motion dog rapidly putting down train tracks as he's going <laughs> yeah that's that's like a little bit of a the quintessential experience of humanity isn't it oh <laughs> uh, if i ever do an autobiography i'm calling it a stop-motion dog rapidly putting down train tracks <laughs> yeah yeah well okay so we're running out of time so let's move on to our final two points mm. um, it feels like this happened last time as well that we were running out of time and so rushing to try and get to the final chapter that we were trying to cover 
And I hope that doesn't mean that we're missing some stuff along the way. If Chapter possible, eight. we can always like sort of cover a little bit of this in the overlap with the next recording session slash batch of chapters. So we that we got true. our ground covered. We got our ground covered. Yeah. And we did talk a little bit more about chapter four, honestly, at the beginning of our session today. So but here we are. It's also true. Chapter eight. The audio drama part of this. I mean, I, I honestly, I've already been talking about, okay, I really like the stuff in Chapter 2. Then I was just talking about I really love all of Chapter 7 there with, with Jeremy and Calvin. But mm. this now following on to Chapter 8 about being just a lot of fun to listen to in parts in terms of the byplay between all of the overlapping voices. The reason I like it is because it feels so expertly crafted having to put together all of the speaking voices in an ongoing conversation that feels organic enough with the constant interruption of the phone. Just the way all of that works together, it almost makes me wonder, from a storytelling perspective, if part of the reason that the phone was one of those new inventions that had been come up by the brain trust, if that was included specifically for dramatic reasons in addition to the practical ones that come with a greater facility for quick communication as being one of the driving points of new century but if alex just put that in because the idea of the phone being a way to convey information quickly to go from one scene to the next or alternately have it as a character in the scene itself if that was something that wasn't originally in the scene and then was put in the scene because of the things that it made possible by including it. Oh, 100%. I mean, this scene is a delight and I can, if things needed to be shaped in order to facilitate it, then I could totally see that happening in a Mm -hmm. sort of smaller scale and grander scale. I mean, just, Alex's delivery as Thomas from his exasperated responses of how to deal with the shortages and issues he is trying to resolve to his reaction to the constant interruptions ranging from just continuing on without missing a beat after putting the receiver down to him just the delivery of tell him to go fuck himself are just paced wonderfully in audio form it really sells you on the annoyances that come with putting out fires in this environment yeah It feels like Alex sort of at the top of his game with the editing that would have been required in order to put all of these pieces together like this. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that there is not a stop missed in terms of keeping that flow going, even though obviously it isn't like this is them acting out a scene on stage or even acting out different parts of the same scene on camera from different angles or anything like that and splicing it together. It involves a hundred small bits of recorded voice lines and then editing them together so it sounds like they're all sharing the same space together. That's magic. A good edit is a magic all to its own that often doesn't get enough praise. If If the edit is bad... This is one of the things that Dan Olson loves to talk about is if the edit is bad, it doesn't matter as much if the component pieces are good because you're not going to put them together in a way that makes it a compelling watch for the audience or a compelling mm. listen or whatever it is that you're, you're editing. Mm. Together. It's like all the Lego bricks needed to create a Death Star are right here. And, you know, it looks fantastic if it's all arranged properly. Otherwise, it's just a jumble of blocks. It's not that, like, there's nothing to it. There's certainly some form of creative expression with this, but it's not really coming together. So when you see it, like, fully formed, it's not always as obvious as some of the other elements of the form but it is absolutely felt if it's out of step. So it's really Mm. worthwhile acknowledging when it gets it really right. Mm. Yeah. I don't have too many things to say about Chapter 8, apart from what we've already written down. The, The scene itself works so really well for what it is, as it first introduces 
the hecticness of the day-to-day, as you say, or even not even necessarily the day-to-day, but like here's the most recent crisis that they're dealing with or crises even with another crisis constantly saying, I demand to be heard over here in the form of Tremaine. One of the things that I hit on as being a component of this part of the chapter that sort of got me to sit up and take notice was once more a result of the words in the text that are not in the audio drama. In the novel, Thomas writes that he disapproves of Sarah's desire to find dancing instructors and outright says, I open my mouth to formulate a protest on the spot, temporarily uncertain as to which obvious reason to cite against this decision. I think some of that confusion, bemusement, irritation is present in the voice acting. Therefore, I'm not as worried about the lack of it being in the audio drama itself. But the question I put to you as being part of our notes is, what obvious reason is Thomas thinking of? The reason I bring this up is because I can't actually think of any really obvious reasons against it. Meanwhile, Sarah makes her case succinctly, and in such a way that her reason for dance instructor being on a list of desired skills is clear. As Curtis himself brings up in one of the previous chapters, you can't forget the importance of morale. Mm. You know, that's what one of Curtis's requests was behind, was some performance that could make things a little bit easier on the White Scarf Army, which is already dealing with a whole lot of stuff as they're basically the vanguard against continuing to deal with the Wendigo threat, which we haven't necessarily seen a lot of up till now, but we already know that they had to fight 12,000 Wendigo just to take back Washington. So you need you to pick imagine... me up after that. Yeah, exactly. And as this particular chapter goes on to say, they're about to be taking back some more cities as well, which is why Tremaine's troops are there and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So to get back to my original point, I find myself wondering why Thomas is bucking against it and can only imagine that it has something to do with the fact that it's a form of morale relief that he's not interested in, or maybe he just considers it as being unimportant in comparison to other more important things. What's, what's your take on that? I think there's something to that. I, it comes across as a kind of a gut reaction on his part. One that hears about people being put to the task of dance instructing when he has made it explicitly clear that everyone needs to be put to work in the place that they will be of the best use to the effort to take back America. And he sees it as something that feels wholly unnecessary. But like you, I completely agree with Sarah's points. I I don't just think that it's a good thing to want to have. I think that it's actually important to have things like this. Mm -hmm. And you see it by the fact that like multiple people in the room and multiple women are like express an interest in it. This has wide appeal, which is just another reason why I think it's a very good thing that Thomas is not making all of these decisions unchallenged, that Sarah also has a say in how resources are employed. I think that the specific reasoning as to why he has that objection is probably down to a combination of the things that you mentioned of like his lack of interest in it and some of the things I'm touching on where he is just like not seeing it as a wider priority at the moment. Either way, the emphasis is not on assessing why Thomas is wrong or like assessing his opinion i think that the emphasis is that all of the right answers shouldn't necessarily come from thomas that he should Mm. there should be things that you know sarah is there to be like 
you're not really seeing why this is important. This is mm. good to have for this. So yeah, it's just another feather in Sarah's cap that she is seeing things that Thomas can't. I do more or less agree with everything Toby said, but as I reflect on this moment during the edit, it still bemuses me. After all, if this moment is meant to highlight that Sarah thinks of things he doesn't, then he could have a surprised but agreeable response, rather than an annoyed or dismissive one. After all, it's not just about what he says and how he says it, but this key moment, where the text actually shows inner thoughts that describe his profound disagreement. Deconstructing it further, there's two potential explanations that may well go hand in hand with each other. First is that he's already under stress with regards to the current crisis, and he's most interested in skills that specifically can resolve that crisis. Practicality is most on his mind, as he himself says, and at this point, Tremaine has already interrupted him twice, peaking his irritation and stress levels from a different quarter. The second part comes from his immediate response after, and requires a little more unpacking. He specifically makes reference to a harpsichord tuner, which sticks out like a sore thumb. I don't know too much about the musical preferences of the era, however, so I had to perform some Google Foo. As it turns out, something that I did not know is that the harpsichord had almost been completely supplanted by the piano as early as the late 18th century. By this point, the late 19th century, the idea of needing a harpsichord tuner would be like me asking for someone experienced in the PC-DOS operating system, or even computer punch cards. Extrapolating from there, maybe the idea of someone that taught ballet dancing would seem to be equally outdated. I could find no easy reference as to what the popularity of ballet would have been like in 19th century America but that fact alone would seem to suggest that it was not common. Ergo, Thomas reacts to it as a time-wasting anomaly till Sarah makes a case for it, at which point he decides it's not worth arguing over, though he is not above showing his disdain. If all of this seems like a needless digression, then I apologize. But it's more than a little bit part and parcel with what Maureen would sometimes call my need to overthink everything and since it didn't feel like we'd addressed it fully in the original conversation, thus this editorial insert. Back to our show. This feels like something that's actually going to come up in later stories as well, specifically in terms of the things that Thomas thinks are important and the, the right things that other people, Sarah included, but others as well, also think are important. In this case, I'm thinking of some of the conversations that happen um, in the early chapters of Steamheart and everything like that. Um, mm. But obviously we will leave those conversations to their place and just sort of keep some of these initial conversations and conflicts in mind for the future. Mm. Um, let's get to the difficult part of Chapter 8, because the second we leave the war room, we go on to the confrontation with Tremaine, Tremaine is fucking scary. There's a reason why I like listening to the first half of this chapter and not the second half. Someone like a certain ex-president wishes that he could be an orator like Tremaine. Part of it is that it feels like Tremaine is cribbing from the tactics of the modern evangelist. The written novel even uses that very word. The fact that someone like 45 did as well as he did is likely more due to content than to any real oratorical puissance like Tremaine shows. Alex, Alex managed to imagine up someone way worse than the ex-president. And even though it's hard for us to imagine how much worse it could have been, a personality like Tremaine's give us an inkling of what it would have been like if Trump was actually as intelligent as Tremaine seems to be. 
I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Reality continues to demonstrate hack writing that lumps us with villains that would be wholly dismissed as unrealistic and one-dimensional if committed to Paige. Mm. You touching on Tremaine coming off as an evangelist made me think of like imagining him as like little Gideon from Gravity Falls, mm. but much more like Lil Gideon is already quite sort of unsettling and mm. off-putting in multiple cases, not just when the mask slips, but when the mask is fully on and out there and just seeing how remarkably effective it is. And this is very much that dialed to 11. Yeah, Tremaine establishes a presence quickly with this scene, as is remarked on in the chapter, you can see that he is more concerned with addressing his followers than he is with engaging with Thomas or whatever political opponent he is set up against. It's a marked contrast to the conversation we saw between Thomas, Conrad and Truth that we began this recording mm. session talking mm. about. Everything that Tremaine does in this chapter is done with the goal of establishing power over Thomas and his space. It's dressed up in the guise of cordiality and proper discourse, but this is very much a power play. Mm -hmm. He insists himself upon Thomas until he makes an appearance and immediately claims it as a victory in front of his throng of supporters. It's a literal demonstration of power and not even to thomas he wants the people to see him as the one controlling this entire exchange which we see come to its teeth grinding conclusion with his repeated demand that thomas publicly make this promise the way that he says say the words mm. in a just i can't really articulate the manner that that delivery comes across as it's simultaneously patronizing and skin crawling he's immensely hateable but even more frightening than he is hateable and i think matt wardle knocks it out of the park with this particular performance because it's a short amount of time but it's far more time than we would want to spend with him and it is enough to establish this character and the danger he represents mm. the conversation that thomas has at the end with frank is revealing in and of itself as frank asks him do you wish that you were like that and he actually has to think about that for a moment and he gives the answer he does about he wants people to rationally come to the conclusion that what he says is what's best. And then he follows up with that memorable line that we mentioned earlier. Now, why do I ask anyway? Do I act like I have a pathological need for control or something? I wasn't going to say that. Yeah, you were thinking it pretty hard. Uh, mm. Which is, you know, Thomas showing self-awareness and... You know, playing it off a little bit, not for humor, but at the very least for a moment of further rapport with Frank and everything like that. But your words about addressing his followers and not engaging with Thomas as much as it is that he is engaging with his audience, that feels more than a little familiar in regards to some of the recent videos that I have watched and recommended to others from the uh, Innuendo Studios guy on the tactics of the alt-right in the modern world in terms of controlling their narrative and to speak towards the people that you want to lead more than necessarily opposing those that stand in your way, because in theory, they don't actually matter. The important is to get the backing of your people while seeming to be as reasonable as possible so that people will end up making both sides' arguments for you. 
Mm-hmm. Tremaine very much understands the importance of winning. Yes, he is. Everything about his language is there to sell the people in his following that they are in the right. Mm-hmm. And not just that, that they are in the right side of history in an mm. almost predetermined way that these aren't just his soldiers, these are his knights. Mm, mm, mm. And that is just a word choice that is very calculated on his part and unsettling to me. Just that, oh, like, you don't need to worry because... Your knights, and any crusade we go on, is righteous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I need to take a shower now, and it's yep. not even because it's friggin' hot out here, and I've kept the AC off to I'll, uh, maintain I'll be, I'll be honest, right here. now I just feel a chill right now. I just mm-hmm. feel a chill. Mm-hmm. I don't have much more to say about that entire exchange. I don't I don't want to talk anymore about Tremaine. I feel like we've said enough, but you mm-hmm. did have some final thoughts about mm. the story thus far. So I will give you the stage once more to, to comment on this. Well, I know I've been hogging the stage a lot this recording session, so <laughs> many apologies to everyone involved. Um, so final observation... I'm just now realizing that many of the episode titles for, at the very least, the audio drama, I'm unsure about the book chapters, they have been titled after specific individuals, but in a way that refers to their position and station, you have, in order, the captain, the engineers, the director, the deputy director, the speaker, the general, the explorer, and the leader. It achieves the effect of putting emphasis on this being a character-driven story, but it also adds to the political thriller flavor of Arlington by populating its chapters with these varying roles and stations in this political landscape. Mm. Also, I find myself wondering about the choices that you just made in terms of referring to the chapters because the version of the audio drama that I have also I know that Alex has mentioned that he's basically coming out with updated versions of both the ebook and everything else to make sure that everything lines up but where you make reference to the captain I have the first chapter is being titled the vice president. Um, Hmm. And when we get to chapter five, I have the president as opposed to the speaker. And then finally chapter eight, instead of the leader, I have the colonel. So Hmm. I wonder if this is a difference of where, where did you get those titles? Did you get them from the ebook or did you get them from your version of the audio drama? I think I got them from the the podcast feed for New mm. Century, where I get it through Podbean, and I scrolled through that and mm-hmm. just looked at the episode titles as they appear on that. And okay. I've been re-listening to the remastered ones specifically. So, yeah, that's an interesting difference in chapter titles, but it almost inadvertently confirms my observation of this pattern, because... Even though there are differences, it maintains the pattern. Mm-hmm. The tendency of this book to use capital V as being the reference to individual chapters is the common thread with Arlington, even if later episodes refer less to a specific person and more to a specific event that's taking place in the chapter such mm-hmm. as Chapter 9, which I have on my list as being The Family Gathering, or mm. a later chapter that specifically is called The Chase, which I won't say more about because we are continuing to try and maintain a separation of, if you have not read 
past this point that we don't want to talk about things that have not yet happened, but hmm. as people that would have access to, you know, a chapter list, then, you know, hiding those titles from you would be kind of impossible. It's just a matter of, you know, like, we acknowledge that they exist, we will not talk further about them until their time has come. But, yeah, yeah I generally... time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I generally agree that I like the way Arlington sets up these chapter titles as being part of a running theme, uh, as opposed to other chapter titles, which are either descriptive of whatever is going to be happening in this chapter, or references to other pieces of media, or both. I think as part of a nature of Arlington, it fits to sort of keep the chapters dry and informative as befits the nature of this story, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to some of the later stuff where it's literally hanging a lampshade on popular movie titles or quotes or stuff like that. So, yeah. On top of what we brought up during the original recording, there is another significance behind the naming scheme. The first 12 chapters are all part of what is characterized as part one of the story, titled Allies. In this way, the fact that most of the chapters refer specifically to people makes perfect sense. As to why some of the names were changed, Alex explained that as he was working on Arlington Remastered, he wanted to make some adjustments so that chapter titles not only focused on whatever or whoever was at the heart of the chapter, but also just worked better in regards to imagery and theme. In the case of Chapter 1, for example, the title changes from The Vice President to The Captain, the focus moving from Rutherford B. Hayes to Annie herself which does make sense given her importance to the overall story, without revealing that Hayes himself will be dead by the end of the chapter. As an ongoing part of our insight into the story, I may well draw attention to some of those title changes for further discussion. Whew. Okay, well, um, tactical issues aside, we got to the end within one day, at the very least, if not one uh, Skype recording, so... Well I'll done call it. Us. it still counts. Yeah, yeah it still counts. So <laughs> just the window closed. We managed to get it open again. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so thank you once again. As we proceed onto our next topic list, I'm pretty sure that we're going to cover chapters nine through twelve. So another four chapters uh, in what we have coming forward. If that changes, I'll let you know. I think I recently reconfirmed that the next four chapters cover enough of an arc that works for what we're doing thematically and everything like that, and that um, future installments may include fewer chapters altogether as we cover some heavier themes. But that's what, in general, you should be looking forward to, dear listeners, and what I'm going to be aiming towards when I come up with the next outline for the next several episodes of Through the Window. So thank you once again, and we'll see you on our next trip through the Window. Take care. Toby recently commented on the fact that we only do a sign-off once every couple episodes, but as naturally makes sense, that's due to the fact that one Skype conversation will be divided into two or more episodes. And since I don't always know where those divisions will be, the other episodes just have a crafted outro by me, complete with song pick. At the end of the day, the reason why we have episodes titled 24A and 24B and all is to keep both the workload manageable and to make it so that individual episodes are shorter and more concise. Toby and I will go on, so it's best we not demand too much of your attention for a stretch. The subheading just makes sure that you're aware that these episodes go more with each other than those separated numerically. And it's just as well that I've gotten into that habit, because as of July 1st, I'm going to be back on to working full 40-hour weeks every week. Instead of getting the two weeks off every month that Through the Wind Door benefited from during 2020. 
As it stands, have no fear. I'm already ahead of the game with editing episodes, and I'm pretty sure we're banking enough output that there won't be any delays due to running out of material. With that said, let me tell you about today's outro music. A couple weeks back, you got to hear a piece from James Taylor that was performed by Amy Mann in an episode of The West Wing. Here today, you get to hear a piece of work that was performed by James Taylor on The West Wing that was originally written and performed by one of his musical influences. In the show, Taylor, playing himself, performs this song at an event being attended by President Bartlett. But once more, I play you the original rather than the cover. Because in a book about an important black family, there should, as always, be plenty of black voices lifting them up. Until next time, this is Sam Cooke singing A Change Is Gonna Come. This first bit was recorded as a result of us reflecting on Through the Wind Door as a whole, now that we're a member of the Fireside Alliance. But I do like that whenever someone comes through and finishes reading Tiger's Eye for the first time, Mm -hmm. that someone can say, hey, if you liked that and you kind of want to just process the story or just hear other people talking about it, there's this Mm -hmm. whole extended series where people Mm -hmm. get into the weeds on it. And... I, I like that. I always like the idea of building a library of things mm-hmm. because it doesn't mean that everything needs to be listened all the time, nonstop. It's just that when someone is in the mood for it or like 
I've been thinking multiple times recently that I'd quite like to just go back and listen to the old interviews because those mm. are very fun and I sometimes forget like just little moments like when uh, Alex included in the later version of Metal Gear the <laughs> the interview with Maya that was fantastic just hearing mm. that and you you forget these things after like when you're not on your fifth episode but on your however if many mm. if episode 60? I, I don't know. 60, uh, 68 now. Ah. If you if you count, like, the very first episode, which is really just a 15-minute introduction. I'm going to say yes, because we <laughs> don't include our interviews with Alex, so, like, yeah. that's just... It balances out, I suppose. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, that is, that is more... Uh, that is more his content than our content. Uh, you know, behind the white scars and everything like that. Also... Mm-hmm. Are Greg and Toby react to the titles of Phase Two? It's just so horribly out of date at this point. But I, I love I, it like, though. You, yeah. just like one episode out of all of them to be like horribly out. You you've got to indulge that a little bit, and I yeah. think there's a certain comedic value in seeing. Huh. Okay. Well, they thought that like this thing was all about that. Like. The you know how outdated it is. One of the titles is no longer the title it was. Like we thought, back in time was just back in time. We forgot to add. We. Well, I <laughs> just, mean, I mean, Wendigo. Yeah, I forgot to carry the one. Nightfall of the Wendigos was once upon a time just Wendigos. Mm, yes. <laughs> a, a bunch of things have changed, and I, I, I'd like. Even Bob Chipman at this point has done more than one show on this is what i predicted at one point how did it actually turn out yes my uh guess was correct no my guess was incorrect so you know Mm -hmm. that's just that's just one of the things that people do now i am really really looking forward to having a chance to chat with chris because uh i enjoy his uh uh, shooting the shit uh, shows mm. and his own ventures and I'm woefully behind on that but it's been yeah. something that I thought oh, this is just a very nice I really like his energy as a discussy discusser mm. whatever the term is this is this is why we have the warm-up for 20 minutes uh, ladies and gentlemen and all peoples of all ranges this is just very much me excising the waffle before I get the still waffle, but just a little bit more cooked waffle. You know, it's just a little more fully baked. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just holding my water bottle somewhat sassily. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I was just enjoying this strange rambling metaphor there that I was trying to unpack as you kept talking. So you don't want to unpack a waffle. It'll lose all its layering and stuff. I put effort into it. Great. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, I it's we're having a heat wave over here, so I can't not mm. have the fan on. The only thing I decided to turn off was the air conditioning unit because that's particularly loud, and I would not be able to filter that out easy. Look, so, like, uh, Greg, if it comes down to it, like I think our listeners would prefer a show where there's a slight rumbling in the background and we're able to be ourselves to a show where it's completely silent, but we're both going, uh, 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 the thing with the character, yeah, that's good. Fuck, it's hot. <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes at this point. I could mm. also potentially just turn the fan up a little higher because that still makes less background noise than the air conditioner unit does. Unfortunately, because the air conditioner unit is like right to my right over here. So it's kind of really close to the microphone. This may be a directional microphone. I may be have it set up to be a directional microphone. Mm. But if something is loud enough, it's going to get picked up anyway. Oh, yeah. But, hey, we can just pretend we've got a new guest and it's just air conditioning bot. <laughs> what? What do you think of the socio-political themes in this episode, Air Conditioning Robot? <laughs> cut his mic, cut his mic, he can't be that intense on air, come on. Next episode, we, we have to apologise for Air Conditioning, but we, we do not stand by his opinions, but we are aware that we gave a venue for his opinions to be expressed. So here we have FanBot to join us. How, how did you think it was, Fan? 
it's it's really it's really expanded my worldview. It just I feel awash in the cool, refreshing insights that you have. Also, air. <laughs> I think I'm done. <laughs> I think I'm done. I think we kind of need. <laughs> Uh, we haven't gotten to the really serious part of the story yet, but the ongoing humor, I think, is necessary. That's one of the things that is definitely a more significant part of our brand now is that we are far more comfortable with being ridiculous dorks on the mm. air for humorous value. Uh, I think mm. that I think that our our overall rapport and comfort being recorded has increased significantly. So I assure anyone listening to this, if you think that any of our, well, my, I won't speak for Greg, but I will presume this is the case. I can assure you that none of this is performative. This is just how we are. In fact, if you had a recording on when it's just me in the house coping with the usual nine to five, it would be incoherent. I would say that I am not that performative, except where I am. There's a saying that I love that I picked up, I think, from a Mercedes Lackey book at some point, which is that um, there is less separation than you would expect between a shaman and a showman. Because any good shaman understands that a good performance is significant to having others accept your wisdom and a good showman someone who performs whether it's illusions or speechifying or whatever it is they're doing for an audience often has picked up more than a little wisdom along the way that can't help but make itself known as part of the performance so, yeah. Well, uh, that's definitely, uh, that's an interesting insight. And I guess it's something that I almost wish we had brought up uh, when we were talking about a couple of characters in Tiger's Eye. But, yeah, uh, I, I'm not sure that it didn't come up. I feel like maybe perhaps it did. Mm. But the silent one definitely understands the imp the importance of a good performance to go with her mm. what she does even if the performance is just putting on the mask of the gagaku in mm. order to scare people away that she doesn't want to have to fucking deal with <laughs> which you know more than fair yeah hello <laughs> thank you coffee oh okay I was... love you <laughs> uh, i'm sorry for sec. a second there i thought i was wondering if someone if uh, sarah was handing you apple um. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, he'll guest on the next one. Um, okay, fair enough. <laughs> this next part right here is in response to Toby being unsure if he was remembering a part in the chapter correctly, and I was looking in the book to try and confirm it or not. And if I'm wrong, then present day, Greg, because I, I him looking at a page in the book can correct me, but I shall leave it in the fates of the two Gregs. <laughs> the two Gregs, goodness. And this final bit was me asking Toby for some additional materials that would accompany our outtakes for episode 23C. I mean, Even you've got it. You've got its poster on your wall. I've so. got the poster on its wall, and I'm just realizing I never sent you that picture. Sorry, audience. Um, I will do so straight after we are done recording. Yeah, no. I, the the picture of the poster, also the the video of Apple, because that's going that's going to need to be important for the outtakes uh, for it. the following episode. Yes. Okay. So um, by the time you hear this outtake. I will completely have resolved that issue. So, you know, more time travel shenanigans of <laughs> release and recording, and it's very wibbly wobbly, poddy casty bollocks. <laughs> my, 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 
My work is so hard, give me water, I'm thirsty, my, my work is so hard, whoa, my, 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 my work is so hard. 